This is a place called Bastrop, a podcast focused on the people in a small town in Central Texas, a place both unique and characteristic of the state's history, with a cultural integrity that unfolds with each passing year. This is a place called Bastrop. So we're now interviewing Randy Fritz, who has written a book called Hail of Fire, A Man and His Family Face Natural Disaster. A wonderful, insightful book, and I, I would say a courageous book, because you, you lay out so much of your own life and, and your own struggles because of that fire. So uh, would you just introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about yourself and your the loss of your house and the fire, and then really talk about what struggles people go through with these things that you've identified. Well, I've lived in the Bastrop area since 1980. I've lived in four different houses, all of which I either built myself or had a part in building, uh, three of which were destroyed in the fire. And um, I'm also the county judge from 1991 to 94. I was on the Smithville School Board for three years prior to that. And all three of my daughters were born around here and are adults now. So this is certainly my adopted home and really, I would say, in the overall scheme of my life, my principal home. I think going through something like this is a life-changing event to state the obvious and it would be hard to, at this point, say whether I'm better or worse off for having gone through it. Uh, certainly I have a house that is more beautiful than anything I've had before. Uh, I've learned some things about myself and other people that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. On the other hand, the event was a catastrophe for the community, particularly in the loss of the Lost Pines. And I think there are probably still some people around here, perhaps many, who are still struggling to get their life back to some level of normality. I'm lucky. I was able to come out of the fire with a lot of insurance money and, and some people that were willing to help me. And I ended up with a property that is absolutely spectacular. And there are many other people who are not nearly as fortunate. So I think, the arc that somebody takes when they go through a process like this is totally dependent on their circumstances and uh, what their resources are, what they have in the bank, what they have in terms of a family, what they have in terms of a support network. So every situation would be different. But for mine, I describe my experience in the book and I hope it's the sort of thing that people can learn from if they go through a similar experience. Randy, will you tell us about discovering what happened to your house 10 years ago? Probably the emotional center of the book is the day after the fire breaks out and then the day that I go back, Labor Day itself, when I discover that our house has been lost. And the main destruction of the fire occurred on the day before Labor Day, September 4th. And I was spending a lot of time at an overlook that is on the park road that gives you a, a wide, expansive view towards the west and you could see the fire and, and where it was and the catastrophe that it was causing just in terms of the smoke and you could actually see little pinpricks of fire which we assumed were homes or structures blowing up. And I never felt that our house was in danger. And so when I went out there the morning of Labor Day, September 5th, to see what had happened, I was fairly sure that I would see my house still standing. And it was only until I was within about two or three miles and saw just essentially a completely devastated landscape with ash on the ground and nothing standing that I realized that I probably was going to be mistaken. But until I drove up and actually saw the wreckage of my home, 
I still clung to the belief that we probably were going to be okay. And I think the fact that I had that delusion for so long made the agony uh, just that much worse. At the end of the book where you gave some pointers for people that might be facing uh, recovering from disasters and so forth, I found very moving and valuable. Because I, I know you pretty well, I know you're a self-made man. You can do almost anything. You've made yourself into what you are again and again and again throughout your life. But this fire seems to me knocked you into a place where you had to ask for some help. Yeah, I, I think of everybody in my family, I was knocked off my feet more than any of us. And it was partly because of the loss of the forest and the loss of the house that I had built that I expected to live in for the rest of my life. But it was also just the complete disruption to everything that I thought I knew about being able to control one's destiny and have control over your life. And, and I quickly realized that if I was going to uh, keep my sanity, I needed to get some help. And part of that was based on my uh, having worked at the Department of State Health Services. And, uh, I was the chief operating officer there. That's the state's public health and mental health agency. And we went through a significant uh, effort helping people who were hurt by Katrina and Rita in 2005. And we would always hear discussions about the need for mental health services in a disaster. So I quickly realized after the fire that I was going to be one of those people. And I don't know if I hadn't worked there, whether I would have had that insight, but having worked at DSHS, I had that insight. And I knew that I was going to be in need of mental health services fairly quickly. I was a beneficiary of the fact that that is a common perception among people involved in disaster recovery. And because I had gone through disaster recovery, both at the local level when I was judge, but more importantly through Katrina and Rita. And of course, Katrina being one of the great disasters the country's ever had. And we were heavily involved in helping people resettle in Texas and, and recover from that. So I was knee deep in that for months. So I was very much aware of the fact that this is something that I was going to need. And it didn't take me long to, to seek it and get it. You said something interesting that you weren't sure if you were better off or not because of the fire. But in terms of the psychological aspect, could you characterize your state of psychological well-being as a result of the fire 10 years later? Well, my book certainly goes into it. And anybody who reads my book will see what I learned. In fact, the last chapter of the book, I think, is a good summation of what I learned. And I think I would say that I learned how to be more empathetic, how to be more sympathetic to people who are in situations of great need. And it became a matter of becoming closer to my family and be more dependent and reliant on them. But I would say as a general rule, my main insights were that you can't take anything for granted. There are no hard and fast rules of life. You never know when something's going to hit you and you have to be prepared for that. And you have to be able to adapt. And I think more than anything, when you need help, you need to, to get it. You can't be self-reliant. And that's that's probably the biggest lesson I learned is that self-reliance is not a suitable strategy for life in all circumstances. In fact, probably many circumstances. There's a bumper sticker in that somewhere. Would you tell us the story of how you wound up living in Bastrop when you wanted to find a place in Central Texas? Yeah, we were living in Chicago and my wife and I decided to move down to Texas. I was a potter at the time and the economy was booming down here and we felt like there'd be a lot of opportunity to you know, create some local businesses. Uh, my wife was a dance teacher and me being a potter and, and this seemed like a good place to be in Texas as a whole. And we started out in the Austin area because of UT and the reputation that the area had for being sort of a bastion of more progressive thought, which of course it still is uh, much more so even now than it was then. 
And we drove around Austin. We heard a lot about the hill country. Didn't like it so much because I grew up in Wisconsin and liked to be around trees. And we took a veer to the east and got to Bastrop and saw the Lost Pines. And that was pretty much it. We moved here because of the Lost Pines. So adds even more to the tragedy of the loss oh, of yeah, the trees. Absolutely. People that have only lived here in the last 10 years have no idea what this place was like. They have no idea what it was like to come over that hill just east of Bastrop and see that gigantic vista of this amazing pine forest. We will never see that. Those of us who are in our 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, again, maybe my kids will. But at this stage, after the fire that endangered the Science Park in 2015, which destroyed the remaining vestige of the Lost Pines and Busher State Park, there's nothing left of the old forest as we knew it. And that, to me, is the greatest loss that we have suffered from the fire. Yeah, pockets, but they're not, oh, nothing I like think it. they lost 90% of it. To get to Smithville or Bastrop, you've got to drive across a devastated portion of that fire. Does that, oh, does sure. that still affect you? Absolutely. Whenever I drive from Bastrop to my home, or even from my home to Smithville, it's impossible for me not to see what the forest looks like now. And there are some people who say the forest is coming back and look at all the pine trees and how far they've grown and they're you know, 10, 15, sometimes even 20 feet high. And that's all true, but there's a lot of invasive species that are crowding all that out. And, and it, it doesn't look really like a forest as much as, as very much a work in progress at its early stages. And the worst part is whenever I drive from Bastrop to my home and look to the uh, north and see the what would have been the state park and what still is the state park in, in a technical sense, but not the state park in any of uh, the way that we uh, remember it. And uh, there's not a trip that goes by that I don't think of what that used to look like and what it looks like now. And, and it's, it's hard, to, hard to deal with. I, I never stop grieving over that. Randy, you made a fascinating comparison of the fire in London, the famous fire in London with the Bastrop complex fire. Could you discuss that in context of where Bastrop is today, 10 years after the fire? My book is broken out into two parts, and at the end of the first part, which ends uh, the morning of the fire as I'm driving into Austin, I was listening to a podcast, and it was the strangest thing. The podcast was a remembrance of the London fire in the 1600s, which apparently took place on the very day that our fire took place. And so I was listening to this podcast about this anniversary of the London fire, and I couldn't believe it. Uh, it was just such a strange coincidence. And they were describing what the fire did to London and how it resulted in the construction of St. Paul's Cathedral, and it created a more systematic way for the city to be laid out. And then there's one other thing, pretty much kill off the rats that were causing bubonic plague. So there were some very good things that came out of that fire, even though it was absolutely catastrophic. Uh, I can't say the same thing for this area. It's not like we have risen out of the ashes much better and thank God for the fire because it got rid of a plague or helped us to you know, create this magnificent world-class building. I think we're in a much different state. We lost our main thing. The only way that we could have a comparison to London in terms of St. Paul's Cathedral would have been if we could have figured out a way to restore the Lost Pines immediately or create something in its place that would have been just as spectacular, if not more spectacular. So the London fire is not a good analogy to what we went through. I think it's a good analogy in the sense that it was a catastrophe for a community, but where the comparison breaks down is that there's obvious benefits that happen to London, and we are yet to see, in my opinion, the obvious benefits to this area. 
What I find interesting, since we're both longtime residents here, and particularly because you as a former county judge have a sense of looking at the whole community in a way that the rest of us don't, that we don't talk about the Bastrop Complex fire or the Labor Day fire. We say the fire. It is a reference to almost everything. So you hear about the London fire and that connection immediately it brings it back. And I think there's a sense in which it lingers for us as just one of the foundational aspects of our life going forward for those who have been through it. But you've been a really good comment that people that moved here afterwards don't know the difference. Right. No, you're correct. Um, I always refer to it as the fire. And, And the people that lived here at the time, especially those that went through it, do the same. I've met people here who have only lived here for six months or a year. They have no idea what I'm talking about when I say the fire. So there is a, a sort of knowledge and experience divide in the community now between those who were, who were here then or, or who uh, knew Bastrop County pre-fire because they drove through it regularly and those who didn't know anything about it but have moved here since. And that's something that I think is going to be a strange thing as we move forward, this bifurcation of knowledge of what's been lost here. A few days after we did our interview with Randy, he spoke at a commemoration of the 10th anniversary of the Bastrop County Complex fire. He spoke very movingly about his experience and shared a reading from his book, Hail of Fire. And we asked him to read that section for us so we can share it with you. The Lost Pines are, or were, almost everything in the popular Wild West image of Texas isn't. Before the fire, I could drive Park Road 1C, the barely two-lane road connecting Bastrop and Busher State Parks, and crane my head upward and wonder how I could be in the middle of Texas while feeling like I was nearing the much-loved redwood and giant sequoia forests of Northern California. On cloudless and crisp fall or winter days, with windows and sunroof open, I felt like an actor in a car commercial in my revved-up five-speed, fighting the urge to look around and upward rather than straight ahead. Summer days brought trips to the Bastrop State Park pool, a lovely artifact of the Civilian Conservation Corps. My girls strapped in and their stomachs sloshing about with every hairpin curve. The road insinuated itself through mile after mile of mature pines and oaks. It rose and fell, dipping over low water crossings and almost kissing the edge of ephemeral ponds that would overflow with heavy spring rains and then fade to nothingness in the summer. Randy, we thank you very much for sharing with us what was obviously a very difficult time in your life. And I'd like to remind our listeners to please read Randy's book, Hail of Fire, and join us soon for our next episode of A Place Called Bastrop.